Welcome to Seek Go Create. We redefine success in leadership, business, and ministry, sharing topics, stories, and conversations that allow us to rethink how we live, work, and lead. This is Tim Winders, your host. I'm coming to you today from the passenger seat of the RV. I hear birds chirping in the background. They will be part of the broadcast. We will not edit them out if they come through because that is part of the experience that we like to have here on Seek Go Create because we are traveling, working, and doing our thing on the road, and we're glad that you're here with us. Before I get to our guest, I want to hear from you. I want you to go to SeekGoCreate.com. Give us your best email address when you go to SeekGoCreate.com. Right up top, there'll be a bar if it's your first time visiting, and it'll say, get bonus content, never miss an episode. Give us your best email address, and we've got some cool things available for you. During uh, most months, we're doing giveaways of some of our merchandise and those type things. So make sure that you go to Seek Go Create, and that's a way that you can join the Seek Go Create community. So thank you for doing that. Today, we have Stephanie Russell as our guest. Stephanie is a, I guess, a new connection for me, but I feel like we've been friends for a while because we've been in and around the podcast world. Uh, she is the founder of Gospel Spice Ministries. Her motto is God's glory, our delight. We'll be speaking about that, I'm sure. She's a wife, mom, podcaster, public speaker, Bible teacher, former women's ministry director, and a strategy consultant. And here's something cool about her that she says in her bio. She is 100% French. I am hopeful with my Southern United States accent and her French accent, we can have this conversation without the need of a translator. Translator, Stephanie, welcome to Seek Go Create. Hi, Tim. It is so good to be here. And yes, I am 100% French. I'm sure you can hear it already. Yeah, that's really, really good. So if you need anything, if we need like subtitles or anything with my accent, let me know. I think I'm going to be clear <laughs> with you, though. Okay, so anyway. Hey, Stephanie, first question I like to ask before we dive into a lot of the topics I've got listed out for us is... In your own words, we bump into each other somewhere, either virtually in the world we're in today or, or socially out and about. And I say, Stephanie, what do you do? What do you tell me? Well, I like to say that um, God has called me to put the spice back in your relationship with God. And I've been doing this because that's what he did for me. And so putting the spice back, if you are experiencing a level of staleness in your intimacy with God right now, then that's what Gospel Spice Ministries is all about. We are passionate to make you fall in love with Jesus at a deeper level, especially if you've gotten used to our 21st century all garlic, all, yeah, all garlic purple salt, and you have forgotten the cinnamon and the cumin and the cilantro of Scripture. We're putting that right back in for you. And it has nothing to do with cooking. However, I'm French, so there just might be a little bit of cooking nonetheless. <laughs> well, I've got to go ahead. This is kind of confession time right up front so that we can kind of frame our conversation. My wife is a fantastic cook, and I have, she has brought the spice into my life. We'll say it that way. When we first met, I was kind of one of these guys. I would say, you know what, I just need me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and, a, and some potato chips, and that's all I need. And you know, that's not the greatest thing to say. We need, we need spice in our life, don't we? Well, I don't know that we need it, but it definitely makes life much more interesting and much better. I don't know that we need it in the sense that if you've had an amazing meal out in a restaurant last night and now is lunchtime and you're going to bring out those leftovers from the fridge, 
from a purely nutritional perspective, you can put them in the microwave for about 30 seconds and they will bring you the nutrition you need. However, they're going to be chewy and they're going to be stale and there will not be much of an enjoyable experience. And oftentimes we think that when we come to scripture, we come to God, it's the same way. We have to be content with whatever he reluctantly dishes out to us, stale and all. Whereas all you could do is bring out the same leftover dishes from your fridge, put them in the oven, sprinkle them with some fresh spices and herbs. It's gonna take a little bit longer to reheat. It will not be 30 seconds. It might be 10, 20 minutes, but oh, Oh, the fresh flavor explosion you're going to have. It just might be better than it was last night. All because you're adding a little bit of fresh spice. So why not do yeah. it? I, I do love that. I don't know if it's an analogy, the metaphor. I'm not, I'm not sure what, it, what exactly it is. But uh, anyway, but I love that because it, it actually speaks to, I guess, my growth not just from a spiritual standpoint, from just really from a life standpoint, because when I was younger, I, I, I actually was trained as an engineer and I was just all about the task, the business, getting things done. And, and literally, even when I moved into my spiritual walk, I was kind of the same way. You know, what scripture do I need to read? What do I need to do? You know, very workspace and all that. So I, we're going to, I, this is going to stretch me as a conversation and I believe it's going to stretch a lot of people also but before we go into a lot of kind of what you're doing now you've got podcasts you've got ministry you've got teachings I really would love to back up because I think we need to understand I think I think the journey people travel is important for us to understand and you have not been a I'll call it a follower of Christ that's a term I like to use you know you haven't been a follower of Christ since the beginning. In fact, you have somewhat of an interesting, I mean, you, you say you were an atheist, is that correct? Yes, I was very much so. I grew up in France and a lot of the cliches you might associate with the French, maybe not all of them are true, but many of them are. And it's definitely a post-truth culture where atheism reigns supreme uh, with a heavy sprinkle of all sorts of Eastern New Age mysticism. And I grew up in a typical French middle class family, very much atheist, huge emphasis on intellectual achievements. So I get what you were saying about getting the task done. It was very much the culture I grew up in and just valuing the intellect and an extremely controlling um, environment in the sense that you are able to control your own future. You are self-sufficient. You are, you don't need anyone. You're able to do things on your own and to make whatever future you wish for yourself to make that happen by gritting your teeth and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and just making it happen. And that's where I grew up. And that was because I'm extremely achievements oriented that really fit me. And so atheism is a good fit when you're, uh, you have an achievement mentality, which I think you can relate to that, can't you? <laughs> yeah, I can, but I, I want to I clarify one thing for, we, we've got a wide, wide um, belief, even system audience. So there's terms that I may ask you to clarify that sometimes we use in, I'll call it church world. You, you stated something, you, you used the term post-truth. 
And outside of some of the circles that you and I run in, sometimes people don't know exactly what that means. Could you maybe peel that back a little bit and say, when you say post-truth and you were talking about the culture you grew up in, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that culture shortly, but tell us about post-truth first when you say that. What do you mean? Right. Thank you so much for helping me clarify that. So the way I understand a post-truth culture, like the French culture is, and most of the West is moving that way, um, it's a culture that has come to the conclusion that there is no such thing as absolute truth. There's no absolute um, objective grounds that can define what truth is. So truth really is whatever you want it to be. And it's, and it's very much linked to the idea of um, relativism, that there's no absolute. So you can believe whatever you want to believe as long as it works for you, but you can't impose it on anyone else. That's the essence of a post-truth culture. And it defines very much um, the West that we're living in right now for, for the audience among, you know, who, who's in the West. And for the more Eastern uh, audience that you may have, the idea of post-truth plays itself out in that idea, same thing of out of the, in the name of tolerance and um, relativity, just accepting someone else's mindset, which is very good. We, we, you know, as Christians, we're not called to judge. There's a difference between judging and assessing truth. Because often case, one of the ways that I came to realize that my mindset, my worldview as an atheist was flawed, was precisely when I came face to face with a question someone asked me, which was, well, in the name of tolerance, how can you even assess in the name of relativism that relativism is absolute? Because it is the one key to the any kind of post-truth relativist mindset that the one thing you cannot remove from any relativist mindset or post-truth mindset is that there is no truth. And that's the truth, which doesn't make that's sense. A, that's kind of a vicious, that's a vicious, that's the vicious circle or the rabbit hole or whatever term you want to use with some of those arguments. And, and listen, I get, I probably, because of where I grew up, Stephanie would not have claimed atheism because I, I you know, I went into a church every once in a while I was in the Bible Belt of the United States, so we kind of assume that just because you grew up there, you're Christian. And that is not the case, though. You just were from a culture that didn't have that paradigm. I mean, we had a Bible on the coffee table, or table. Some people don't know what a coffee table Anyway, but, but it was never opened. It was just there to maybe scare the boogeyman away or something. I don't know. because, And so I, I'm, I'm wanting to kind of tie these together because I think because of the culture I'm from originally and, and traveled a good bit, the culture you're from originally, I really do think we can kind of help redefine a lot of, you know, I, I, like, I like to say redefine success. We could help people redefine this. So anyway, thank you for talking about that. And, and, and I think a lot of people use post-truth as, or at least in the United States, there's a little bit of Bible training there, but not a lot. And we're getting beyond where people even have any understanding of Bible. So, you know, you and I would go into an environment and we would start spouting scripture with people that don't even know what the Bible is, right? I mean, so, so was, there, was there Bible or church around you at all growing up in France? Did you have that at all? Not at all. I never went to church as a kid. Uh, we did not own a Bible. 
uh, there was one book, we were bookworms, so we had lots of books, but there was one book on our family bookshelf or family book wall that had, uh, it was Greek mythology and it was Eastern mythology and it had biblical mythology and it was just a book about mythology from a biblical perspective. So it was assumed that the Bible was right up there with the Iliad and the Odyssey or with Gilgamesh and it was just a fairy tale and so I, well, I was familiar with the story of I don't know Noah's Ark as much as I was with the story of Ulysses in the Odyssey for example I would put them really much on par um, and again you know I loved what you were saying about the fact that you grew up with a Bible in your house but that didn't make you a Christian and for me growing up I grew up in an atheist home, but that didn't make me an atheist either. We absorb whatever cultural environment we're in as a kid. And then when you're a teenager is when you start asking your own questions. And, um, you know, I have two kids that are teenagers. And so we're in the throes of making sure that they're owning their own faith, not their parents. But for me, it was the same journey of deciding whether I was going to embrace what I had been told as a kid, which was atheism or whether I was going to go a different route. And by the time I was 15 or 16, I definitely had embraced atheism as my worldview. So I wasn't just absorbing it from the surrounding culture. I was actively reading Stephen Hawking, for example, was one of the authors that I preferred because very intellectual, very aggressively atheist. And so you need to also remember that I had never met a real Christian ever. It took me, and I'll explain how that happened, but I literally, the only things I knew about the Christian faith was either what I had read in my biblical mythology kid book next to Gilgamesh, which was a little slanted, or what I was reading through my atheist authors, which was probably slightly biased as well. And so I had no unbiased, I had never had a conversation with a Christian. So it's easy to embrace the surrounding culture you're in when you're not exposed to other cultures. So for me, the big culture shock was when I was 16 years old, I came to the U.S. as a foreign exchange student for one year. I did my senior year of high school in the U.S. because I wanted to learn English. My accent at the time was horrendous. If it is thick now, you don't even want to know what it was like 30 years ago. But I did that to learn English and I came as an atheist. But lo and behold, the family I ended up spending the year with were very strong followers of Christ, to use your expression. And that was my first exposure to the spices of the gospel as they were originally intended and not through the lens of the bias from my atheist authors. Yeah, I, I love that. But there's, okay, this is the way my mind works and you know we kind of prayed as we got started just say lord use us in whatever way you need to and so i've got like three or four directions and i'm kind of talking to see which direction i want to go here i think the first direction i'd love to go is i'd love to ask you growing up you know we all have i'll use the word dogma because it's a stronger word than just beliefs there's a dogma that many of us have the dogma of where I grew up was, you know, we're Christians, we're conservatives, we're, I'll, I won't name a political party, but, you know, there's just certain dogmas. And it sounds like, you know, the, the intellectualism, relativism, was there, was that dogmatic or was it, did it just exist? Do you recall it being dogmatic at all or 
or this is the way we are because of where we are yes or no um i guess it would depend probably on the people uh, you would be referring to as a child you're obviously you know these are my childhood years so you are well, your family have, have it your, exactly. have it your family exactly. yeah your family so uh, in my family uh, my dad was still is extremely dogmatic so for him it was a dog eat dog world out there he wanted me to succeed and um, again a self-made man slash woman theory was the only way he wanted me to go into business. He planted in me that passion for business. Uh, I think I was just naturally wired um, to have more affinity with business than I did with engineering, for example, where you came from. Uh, and so that was just a natural thing. But also the dogmatism came, at least from my father, in the sense of um, I'm right or else. That was very much his stance and to this day that has not changed my dad also uh, and i don't want to go into too much you know psychology or anything but um my dad happens to be an alcoholic and he had serial he he was a womanizer and uh, that made for very difficult relationships at home my parents got divorced so extremely dysfunctional environment in many ways my mom adopted very new age, uh, I mean, Western new age mysticism pretty early on because I think she was trying to cope with some of the abuses that came with my father's overwhelming personality. And so you can see already that there's different influences there. But the bottom line was, I think an atheism was a good um, conduit for the underlying mindset. So atheism really is the outward manifestation of a deeper seated dogma, if you will. And in my case, it was a, um, you need to be strong and self-sufficient. You can't depend on anyone else, you're on your own, and you're gonna have to make it happen. And if it means stepping on other people's toes, or even totally eradicating others on your way to success, then that is not a problem. And um, my dad looked at me when I was 10 or 12 and he told me very proudly, you are going to be a shark one day, my daughter, and that will make me proud. And that became a little bit of my definition of success, uh, which looking back now is a bit of a joke and God has a sense of humor and I'm so glad he redeemed me from that. But my mindset was, I need to be the best. I need to be a shark. And there is not a whole lot of morality or ethics or compassion attached to it. Whatever it takes to succeed, you just do it. Yeah. And so, all right. So that's excellent because it kind of spills into one of the other paths that my mind was kind of bringing up a moment ago. When you came to the United States and you were with this family, I'm sure you weren't looking for, I want to be with a Christian family and I want to learn their ways. I want to be taught their ways. No, but were you at all questioning or seeking or or in your mind going, there's got to be more, how are we created? Were there any questions at all? And I know you're still an extremely young lady, but it's probably been a few years ago and we can't remember exactly what was going through your mind. Do you recall at all being a seeker at well, that time? Well, I, I recall very well not being a seeker at all, Tim. And mm. I know that God promises that he will reveal himself to those who seek him. That's in Jeremiah, it's in Isaiah, it's in a lot of places. And, uh, but there's also a verse, it's in Isaiah, and, it's, and Paul quotes in a Roman where God says that he will reveal himself to people who are not seeking him. And that means the world to me because God revealed himself to me when I wasn't looking for him, I wasn't seeking him, I didn't have a... God-shaped hole in my heart, which is from Blaise Pascal, one of my French, uh, you know, um, 
um, he, he, nationals, he's French, but I, I didn't, I had that hole, I just didn't know it. I wasn't seeking to fill anything with God that I knew of. I was very much seeking to fill my life with all sorts of things, but none of them had to do with God. And I thought, I honestly, um, in my arrogance, a part of it maybe is attributed to youth, but part of it is just who I was, very prideful and arrogant and self-sufficient because I had been taught that's the only way to survive. Um, that really God was not part of the picture at all. I was not interested. When I realized that my um, American mom and dad, as I now call them, were Christians, I assumed it was because they grew up in the culture you described of when you're an American, you're a Christian. That's what you do. You've got a Bible on your coffee table and you never open it. Maybe you go to church on Easter and Christmas. You probably get your kids baptized, but it's very nominal. It's There's no real fire there. There's no passion for God. There's no um, search for intimacy with God or even a true relationship with him, with him. It's about the rituals. And that might be because my only exposure to some form of the Judeo-Christian mindset was through the Catholic history of my country. And so where it's very ritual based, very works based. And so not a not a good picture of true Christianity that I had been exposed to. So I really thought they were Christians because they were Americans. That's what Americans did. And um, just like you might think that French are atheists. Well, I used to think that Americans were Christians. And then I realized yeah. what it really meant by experiencing it, by meeting Christians, true followers of Christ for the very first time in that family. Right, right. Okay, so my all right, here's my, my final path that I was thinking of earlier because it's spilling in very well. I believe the Holy Spirit's really working here. So as an intellectual that you mentioned earlier, typically, because I, I, I probably would have never coined myself that way, but I wanted to know stuff. I felt as if it was impossible for me to be too knowledgeable about topics and I wanted to be well read and anyway so I was pursuing I guess what I want to know is were you were you on a quest for knowledge I mean you came to the U.S. to learn the language and all were you on a quest to just learn more and know more as an intellectual is that part of your path it was it was but I really did not think that Christianity would have anything to bring to the table. I really, right. for me, I was, there was this openness, but within a very narrow-minded worldview, if you will. So I was willing to learn as much as I could to the extent that it fit into my already pre, prejudiced, pre, you know, prejudices. Oh, gosh, here's my accent taking over. Sometimes I have a hard time saying some of those words. Um, but um, my kids make fun of me for it all the time. <laughs> but no, some, no. I, I Listen, walked into I, that mindset. I speak I speak English, so I'll butcher the language shortly here. So don't, it's, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, it's just, it does that sometimes. Like my kids tell me I, my accent just gets thicker and they correct. Um, that's, it's the joy of raising your children cross-culturally. They will correct you on all things cultural very quickly. <laughs> but back to that, yeah, I, I was willing. Okay, here's the thing. I was, there was such a measure of arrogance and pride. And um, I think I'm able to say it today because first because it's true and also because I think the only way to buttress up your worldview when that particular worldview is a an atheism that teaches you you're it there's no greater moral being there's no absolutes you're it 
So you got to make the best of it and you've got to do this on your own. So self-sufficiency and extreme control are the only way to be successful in an atheist, no God worldview. And so I wanted to buttress up that worldview within the confines of it. I wasn't willing to step out of it. I had no interest in embracing another worldview. I had not seen the flaws of atheism. For me, it was a holistic worldview that answered for the world's questions. And I was very content in it until right. my Christian friends pointed out to me that post-truth mentality that I was not even aware of. Because when you're swimming in something, you stop seeing it and smelling it and sensing it. You're in it too much. And so stepping out of your own culture is probably a lifesaver for most people. I highly recommend it. God has led us many times to places where we as a family have had to step out of our own culture, France or Africa or the US or the, the UK, the various places we've lived over the years. But it's a lifesaver because it forces you to reevaluate everything you think you know in the light of someone else's experience through their own culture. And it's a very humbling process. The reason why I can say that I used to be a very arrogant uh, an intellectually minded young lady is because I'm none of those things anymore <laughs> in so I, many ways. And it takes a path of humility and of a lot of humbling to realize that um, that God truly is the answer to all of your needs. And it's completely outside of yourself. You it's know, extremely it, freeing and very humbling. It is. It's so interesting to me as we're as we're speaking here, Stephanie, because we come from very different cultures. Obviously, we're different genders, but yet I hear, I hear parts of my story because the word arrogance would definitely be a word I could use with myself. You and I have interacted in some mastermind groups and things, and I would never use that term to describe you. But I actually think it goes back to this quest of knowledge and, and, and intellectualism because there was this desire. I always had this desire. I may not have stated it, but I really wanted to be the smartest person in the room. Which is a control issue, isn't it, Tim? It, whoa, you call me out. <laughs> <laughs> it takes one to know one. I'm not casting any stones, but it's true. At the end of the day, we want to be in control of our environment. And for some people, it's going to be um, through knowledge, like head knowledge. For others, it's going to be emotional manipulation. For others, it's going to be um, all forms of addictions in order to cope with an environment we can't control but seek to control. We all have different ways to control our environment in order to feel in control. And for you and me, it might, it might have been an accumulation of knowledge, which in the world we live in, is a very decent, reasonable, acceptable grounds for arrogance, which is terrible. Yes, so I definitely related to that, which I'm gonna pile on that just a little bit and go back to your story of coming to visit. And, and then after that, we're gonna kind of move into some cultural discussions with your story, because I love to get wisdom from someone who's lived in different cultures. But did you ever, and you may not want to admit this, but I can admit this, so maybe you can or can't. You can say, no, Tim, never. Did you ever, coming from the intellectual and needing control and standpoint, did you ever look at people that had a belief in the creation story or the story of Moses, the story of Noah, the stories of biblical that I believe that you and I have come to embrace, but if you go back to 
the early conversations with the Christian family that you were staying with. I used to really think they must be, I'm going to use a very harsh word, some kind of ignorant. Stupid. Stupid. Absolutely. Oh, yes. And which is really, really built on the arrogance. So, so talk about, and, and I know it's been a while, but can you tell a little bit about, because I think this is vital to followers of Christ today on how we minister to people. How did those barriers, that arrogance, that whatever words we want to use, your perceptions, how did that break down over the course of the days, weeks, and months that you were living with this Christian family? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm afraid I need to say yes, absolutely. Very judgmental spirit. Um, And honestly, Tim, the only way to sustain a worldview that doesn't include love at its core is a judgmental spirit and that's what atheism again is because there's not a whole lot of love in the worldview that i grew up in and so yes definitely i mean how can you feel like you're in control that you're superior to others which is the definition of success unless you have a judgmental spirit which is extremely toxic and very quickly is going to put you on a pedestal in your own mind compared to others and therefore put them down Therefore, consider yourself superior to them, which in a Darwinian worldview completely actually makes sense. If we are the end result of evolution, of course, we're superior. And if you want to be on top of the food chain in your human world environment, then you have to be on top of the other humans. Therefore, they're not worth as much as you are, which is terrible. And okay, the antidote to this is love, which sounds so cliche, but hear me out. My American mom and dad, when they welcomed me into their home, welcomed me with love. Here's what it looked like. They were, um, so I was 17, they were in their mid-30s, and they had three young children at home. They allowed me in. There was no uh, desire that I noticed on their part to keep up any form of appearances. They would see... Uh, They would allow me to see the good, the bad, and the ugly in their lives. They were disciplining their children when their children were misbehaving. They weren't pretending that their kids were perfect. I even saw them over the course of the year argue with each other, which I had seen plenty of that in my house growing up. What I had never seen growing up was them also reconciling, asking for forgiveness, putting the other above themselves. That, That was completely foreign to me. To put someone else above yourself? Why on earth would you want to do that? How different, how unique, what a different flavor, what a unique spice. What that did to me is that, here's the thing, Tim, in my arrogance, I didn't think I had anything to learn from them as far as their faith went. But they earned in my heart the right to tell me about their faith, to tell me about their God, to tell me about their Christ because They were loving towards me. And so what that did is that it started shedding for me this idea that I was superior or that I had all of the answers. I didn't go there seeking to teach them anything, but I wasn't necessarily interested in learning when it came to faith. I wanted to learn the American culture, the language, but not faith. That wasn't on the table for me. And yet what I came out with in that year was primarily an understanding of what faith meant to them 
and more importantly, who they had their place, who they had placed their faith in, and discovering the trustworthiness of a God whose existence I was actively denying even just a few months before. That that was absolutely life changing. So when God is described as love. Not something he does, but something he is. That is the single most life-changing thing you can tell someone who's an arrogant control freak like I was. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So th this is uh, sometimes I have little snarky thoughts that come to my mind. And so <laughs> I'm going to ask this real quick. So at what point? So you were there for how long? A year? One year. Mm hmm. One year. So at what point did they whip out the Bible and start berating you with scriptures and saying, thou shalt this? And that, did they ever say, okay, Stephanie, it's decision time. Let's go. You, you need to commit and get saved. When did that happen if it did? Well, it still hasn't happened. <laughs> <laughs> so this was they 30 haven't. years ago. They've never done that. So here's how things kind of went down is that, like I said, for the first few months, it truly was that respect. Uh, I mean, I respected them dearly because they were doing such an amazing thing for me. I could see their love in action. I just wasn't. I mean, love is something <clears throat> that is very real in atheism potentially, but it's not linked. The root cause of love is not a relationship with God. It's your desire to impress others. It's whatever, you know, mor morality worldview you insert into atheism. But that's up to you because it's post-truth. So you get to decide what kind of morality you have as an atheist. But when you are a follower of Christ, you don't get to choose those things. You have ethics and you are a loving person <clears throat> because you are indebted to a loving God. And so love for the first few months is what they showed to me. They didn't show me their Bible. They didn't, you know bring out verses, uh, you know, all of short, fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We're all doomed to hell. Um, I know, okay, here's the thing. In the background, they had started praying for me. And when someone starts praying for you, the Holy Spirit starts intervening. Even when, as you, when you are the recipient of the prayers, you don't even know it. So I think in the spiritual background of all of this, the Holy Spirit was beginning to woo me, but I had no idea. I had no idea. I was not even interested in being wooed, unlike a lot of other people I know who truly seek God and find him. But within three or four months, we had had enough intellectual conversations because here's the deal. God has a sense of humor and he placed me with a Christian family where the dad loved intellectual conversations and where the mom was actually a very loving and caring person, maybe not so intellectual, but she was love in action. And he was able to, the, the, the dad was able to meet me intellectually step by step. And the mom was loving me behind the scenes. Um, she, had, um, she had made a lot of the poor moral choices that I had been making as a young adult too. And so she could relate to a lot of my uh, less than stellar choices to put it mildly um, and he could meet me toe to toe intellectually so very quickly he pointed out the flaws in my worldview but because he did it lovingly he earned the right to speak into it and because i was grateful for the love they were showing me i could tell that they really wanted me to go to church with them which was not something they ever forced but see gratitude was beginning to sprout in my heart, which I believe was one of the first ways that the Holy Spirit started um, 
changing my heart and watering those seeds they were planting by making me want to do something to thank them for everything that they were doing for me. And I quickly understood because their faith is so important to them, coming with them to church on Sunday, I'm going to hate it. I'm going to be miserable. But if it makes them happy, it's a small price I'm willing to pay out of gratitude for what they're doing. So I started doing that. And there I met with a lot of other believers and a pastor who is speaking truth in love every Sunday. Fast forward a few more months, here I am from an intellectual perspective in an extremely uncomfortable, hairy point. I have come to the conclusion through a lot of reading, um, through a lot of conversations, that not only is the Christian faith not completely stupid, which I really thought it was, I really thought any kind of faith, but specifically the Judeo-Christian worldview, was um, a crutch. It was a, you know, the opiate of the people. It was something you did when you were weak and unable to do the life on your own. And I'm very strong. Thank you very much. I don't need anyone. But this was already shattered by the testimony, by the witness of my American mom and dad and their friends. And here I am. This is maybe February or March. So I've been in the States since September. Um, I've come to the realization that and that's, that was a shocker. Like, I lost sleep over it. That Christ not only was a human being who had lived, but he was a human being who had risen from the dead. This was around maybe slightly before Easter, so it was very seasonal. But I came to the realization that as an atheist, I realized that the resurrection was a historical fact. Um, I'm not an engineer, so I don't understand. Like, science truly is a foreign field to me. My brain isn't wired for that, but I love history. So historical truth matters a lot to me. And intellectually speaking, intellectual integrity also matters. So when you mix intellectual integrity and historical truth, and you study the life of Christ, you study the life of the first disciples, the life of the early church, you come to the realization pretty quickly that the resurrection is a historical fact. It actually happened. It's not a myth. There's no swoon theory. Uh, all of those theories, they don't hold water. As an atheist, this is a very uncomfortable position to be in. I'm an atheist, but I believe that there's a human being called Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. This is not a good place to be. I really do not recommend it. I mean, I do, obviously, but it's not fun at all. It's very uncomfortable because all of a sudden you realize maybe you're not in control as much as you thought you were, which for an arrogant 17 year old is, is not a good place to be. And so I wrestled with God. I don't know if you're familiar, I mean, you are, but if our audience is familiar with the story of Jacob who wrestled with God and who came away limping as a result, that's very much how I felt in that season. I was wrestling with God. Here I was torn because in my head, I knew that the resurrection was true, but I was completely unwilling to accept it in my heart because Tim, that meant surrendering to a God whom I didn't know if I could trust. Yeah, because if God is like the stories of Gilgamesh, like the Iliad and the Odyssey that I was reading as a kid, then he's not trustworthy. He's capricious. He's going to change his mind. He's a man-made invention. Anyway, I'm not ready to trust him. But how do I reconcile this with a resurrection? And that was the dilemma that I swarmed in for several months of what do I do with what I know to be true intellectually, but that I am not willing to accept because I am and I want to remain in control of my life. 
So did all of this occur? I mean, obviously this was all going on while you were with this family. And, and I do want to say something. I think this is important for followers of Christ, non-followers of Christ, everything. That one item that came to life for you, the resurrection, because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's all about the cross. Actually, the cross is important. Jesus had to go to the cross. But had he never been resurrected, <laughs> then he would have just been someone that went to the cross. The resurrection is the separator of all things throughout all eternity. I mean, literally, we could get big time here. And I agree with you. I mean, because I, I wrestled with the creation story for a while. And the creation story is important because it builds on that resurrection. But that resurrection is it. So you were wrestling with this. And, and I'm kind of watching our time here because I want to get to kind of more of your story. But did you make a decision then? Or were you just going through the internal battles? See, a lot of people think that coming to Christ is a one-time decision. My journey was more of a steps, steps and processes along the way. I don't know if yours was or not. I'm not going to argue with anyone over that. But was it like Easter Sunday, you got dressed up and you put a hat on, you went to church with your family and bam, you're a Christian now? Or was there still a longer process to go through? Oh, no, there's a story there. Um, so we're past Easter right now. This is May or June. So this is my year in the States is winding up. I'm about to go back to France. And... Um, I'm really wrestling with this. And this is the beauty of the Holy Spirit wooing us is that I'm telling you, Tim, the Holy Spirit was pestering me, was not leaving me alone, was forcing me to take sides and to choose. And I'm so grateful that he did because I'm not sure that I knew I would have known enough to do this had it not been the Spirit truly um, guiding me even in my choice. So here's what happened is that I came to this point of being exhausted psychologically, mentally, with this wrestling with God that was constant. I wasn't sleeping well and I was just exhausted. So I remember literally telling God, okay, God, I'm almost sure you exist. My problem is I really don't know if I can trust you. However, evidence, again, the more intellectual side of me, evidence seems to indicate that I should at least give you a chance. And Tim, I'm a chocoholic. I love dark French chocolate. But if you've never tasted really dark, yummy chocolate, then you don't know what it's like. I can describe chocolate to you from an outsider until I'm blue in the face. But if you don't at some point take a bite of the good stuff, you're never going to know what it is. And then you can decide for yourself if you like it or not. And I've yet to meet someone who doesn't when they've tasted the good stuff. So here it was with God. I, was, I had been described by others what it was like to walk with God, but I hadn't tasted it for myself. And I came to the realization the only way I can know whether God is trustworthy is to give him a chance at trusting. And so I told God, here's what's going to happen. For one week, one week, Tim, I'm going to believe that God, you are real and that you love me and that you are trustworthy. But if I don't like what happens during that week, at the end of the week, God, I'm taking my life back and we are done with this thing. He, can you hear the arrogance of that? It's, it's just the arrogance. I, just, I, it's I so can, humiliating. Stephanie, but I'm just, 
this is me. This is like my paradigm, my weird mind. My name. I'm sitting here going, I'm, I'm thinking of sitting in God's shoes, which I know some people like, oh, no, don't do that. But I'm going, I got her. <laughs> I got but, her. Yeah, either that She's or mine. like, I really need all to I, zap her. <laughs> I, all I need is a few minutes and she's exactly. mine. And he's going, a week, a week, she's mine. Stephanie has stepped into the kingdom of God. Yes. And so that's, but see, um, C.S. Lewis says that when he came to faith from atheism too, that he was, I quote, the most reluctant convert in all of England. Well, I like to say I was the most reluctant convert in all of France, even though I was in the States, because I really went into this thing, kicking and screaming, trying to find every excuse not to. And God would strip away all the excuses until I was pretty much in a position where I had to trust him for a week. And so honestly, Tim, I know it's going to sound so cliche, but the overwhelming peace that I felt of not having for just one week, not having to fight in my mind the battles that I had been fighting against myself in many ways, because what I had known to be true, but I could not embrace because of my worldview, all of a sudden I was free to embrace for a week. And the peace that came and the rest was overwhelming. It was like, I don't have to fight this for a week. I get a week off from fighting this battle. And so the peace, the rest that came, the ability to embrace in my heart what I had known to be true in my mind for a while, there's nothing like it. And so here I was, um, maybe about five years later, telling a friend the story, very much like I'm telling you right now. And she asked me the obvious question, which was, what happened at the end of the week, right? And I looked at her and I went, oh my goodness, the week is up. I, I never thought of it. I, I never yeah. thought twice. The chocolate was so good, there was no way I was going to give that up. And that's when I, when I talk about tasting the spice of the gospel. That's what it is about, is that when you get a taste of God, when you experience intimacy with God, when fellowship with Him becomes your everyday experience, when you, you've tasted the good stuff, you're not going back to the fake chocolate. And I'm not gonna buy, you know, brand, name any American brand that is from Pennsylvania where I live, where I feel it's like, this is not chocolate, it's crap. And you call it chocolate. You need to taste the good stuff. Um, there's no going back. So that's kind of the story. So I got baptized about a month later. And then I went back to France as an 18 year old, utterly convinced I was the very first French Christian ever. Were you going to, were you going to evangelize? I mean, it's like, okay, I, now I'm going I, to I evangelize France. I didn't know what France. that was. I didn't know what that was, uh. but I had never met a French Christian. So I kind of thought I was the first one, which is, you know, that arrogance didn't leave right away, right? Can you still hear it? <laughs> um, it actually took me several years to find uh, believers in a Christian church. So I wasn't completely yeah. far off in the fact that it took a while. So, Yeah, that's... um. That's so fascinating. I love, I love hearing that story for multiple reasons because for someone who's listening that is a follower that maybe still even questions things, I actually don't 
hate it when people say they're still questioning <coughs> because that means they're still on a path and they're still questioning. In fact, I even have very candid conversations with the Lord today about letters that Paul wrote, about things he says about certain you know issues. And this morning I was in Ephesians and I'm going, Lord, what was Paul thinking here? And he goes, I'm glad you asked that. Here's what was going on. I went, oh, well, that kind of helps me out a little bit. So I don't think that's bad. I think there is this check your brain at the door mindset that as someone who's a former intellectual, I don't know that that's the way we were, many of us were created. And so I love the thought of that. And my guess is, is you continued digging as a believer, and we're going to get to that here, is you wanted to know more about this relationship. And we actually have a book that we can dive into that allows us to do that. So let's do, I'm, I hate to kind of press a little bit of fast forward here, but let's move through kind of your journey. And I want to get to where we are now with, with Gospel Spice, the ministry, with all that you're doing. But give us, let's just kind of do a quick fast forward to catch up to modern day, because I also want to tie in some of the cultural, I want to give some cultural lessons from all of your experience. Is that okay? Sure, sure. So just to fast forward really quick, I completely agree with what you're saying about diving into scripture, into the Bible to try to understand, uh, to accumulate knowledge, but also to um, understand this new lens through which to view everything that God gives you when you come to faith. And so um, my very first book that I studied it was the book of Daniel, which is unusual. But again, it's because I was coming at it from somewhat of an intellectual perspective. I wanted to understand a hard one. And um, I love Ephesians. So it's, it's one of the short masterpieces of Paul, I think. But so for the next, you know, however many years, I accumulated a lot of knowledge about God to reshape this mindset. Um, when you've walked, uh, I don't know, with a bad posture for many, many years and you're trying to correct it, well, it takes a lot of work and intentionality. So there was a lot of intentionality for me to replace my faulty worldviews with a biblical worldview. And so that took a lot of work, a lot of humility, uh, a lot of humbling, Tim, over the years, losing the arrogance, God redefining success for me, because all of a sudden I wasn't so interested in um, having a successful business career. I was a lot more interested in discovering who this God was, who had given so much for me and who had proved to be so trustworthy. Interestingly, God's trustworthiness, which is a, you know, a uh, a stumbling block for so many people is something that he solved quite quickly for me. And I very quickly became aware of his trustworthiness. And faith is something that I was able to um, to use as a foundation quickly on. And at the same time that I'm studying scripture and I'm listening to people who are expounding scripture to me, this is all pre-internet, pre-podcasts, right? So lots of books, lots of, you know, um, radio and TV. At the same time, I'm realizing that God has given me an unquenchable hunger to tell others about what I'm discovering in Scripture. Not as an evangelist, more like a teacher. And he has equipped me with the ability to tell others the discoveries that I've made for myself and that have changed me, and this ability to somehow make them palatable and to mix those spices and, and present a recipe that others can taste and they can taste God through um, what God is doing through my own 
experience of scripture. So at the same time that I'm discovering scripture for myself, I'm discovering a desire, a hunger, a passion to tell others about that because the last thing I want is to be mediocre in my faith in the sense of I want to know and experience all of as much of God as I can in this lifetime. And I want that for you too. I truly do. See how I used to be so judgmental and I used to think I was so superior to others. And here is God placing in my heart a desire to truly serve and come alongside others so they too can experience and taste the goodness of God through scripture, through their own intimacy with him. And that's what gospel spice is all about because it's this complete reversal. Um, my greatest fear when I gave my life over to God was that he was going to alter all of my priorities and my beautifully laid out plans for a business career and for success and money and fame to come, that he was going to take all of it and twisted on its hand and it scared me and that's exactly what he did and I could not be more grateful he completely redefined success for me because all of a sudden and I can say this from the sincerity of my heart is that he has humbled me so much am I still arrogant yeah there's still shreds of that once in a while because I'm still me but God has so radically removed my self-sufficiency and these are not just words Tim this is a lifetime of God's tripping away the self-sufficiency um, to come to a place where God's sufficiency is greater than self-sufficiency by large and redefining success in the sense that all of a sudden it's not self-success it's God's success and that might sound again very cliche but it when God takes hold of you and he gives you his vision for what he wants for you and you are bold enough and brave enough and adventuresome enough to embrace it, to actually believe him and follow him where he's taking you, it completely redefines success for you. It's not the path you were planning on going down, but it's so much better. And it's, it, always, it will always have to do with coming alongside someone else. It's never ultimately about yourself only. It is about you, but not only you. And so God will come in and he will define success in terms of how can you be his mouth his hands and feet to others because that's what Christ has done. So Gospel Spice is about helping others fall in love with God because that's what he's done for us. Yeah, that's I, I love the thought of that and I love how you wove in the word success there because it's so much of what we're about. We could use different words, paradigms and other things. I, I actually love because it's actually an affirmation to me because I'm hearing some similarities, even though we, we come from very different places, but I think similar creation might be the case. You know, I like to be right and I like to have control. And I know that's not you, I'm just putting words in your mouth, but, <laughs> but, oh. but, what that, but what that forces, Stephanie, and I'm really picking up on this, is that it forces a non-flippant, I mean, and a very intentional, focused study of Scripture and questioning and saying, Lord, do I understand Ephesians 4, 24 this morning of, you know, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. I mean, I, I picked that apart for a whole page in my journal this morning because I wanted to understand it instead of just saying, you know, going out, I'm a new man, I'm a new man, I'm a new man, I'm not who I used to be. No, there's a lot to that. And I really detect 
that that's the way you approach it, which then there's a natural spillover, Stephanie, which means you want to teach and share the things you're learning, which it sounds like you do. And I know I've listened to your podcast and, and you do that quite often there and, and do an excellent job of it. I love the analogy or the metaphor. I can't remember which one of the spice, but, but before we move to some of that, as we finish up, I, I want to tap into some of, I guess, the cultures that you've experienced in your life. And I'm trying to, and I'm trying to, decide how to ask this question so we can, I don't necessarily want it to be your story. I'd love to hear it. I've heard it. It's been, you've been interviewed before. So what I would love you to do is to maybe pull from some places that you've lived, from some cultures you've been immersed in and lay that over how you've used that to understand uh, the scripture in a different way. I, I have this theory that I, I use the term first world, Americanized, whatever term, that we read the Bible in a very unique way. It's not all bad, but it can be very limited. So if you are talking to me or anyone listening that may have looked at Scripture from a very narrow culture, teach us a little bit on what you've learned from your experiences that can kind of open up different views of the way we see Scripture. See, I love what your question says about you. It, teach, it tells me a lot about a humble spirit and a teachable mindset, which is exactly that makes me feel, what... That makes me feel so good to hear that. It really does. Thank you. <laughs> Truly, right? Because you wouldn't be asking that question if you weren't interested in stepping out of your own culture to try to see what you can learn from someone else's culture. And that's exactly the essence of a teachable spirit that God loves, right? And you cannot have a teachable spirit unless you have at least a decent measure of humility. So that shows that you and I are growing, Tim. And that's a beautiful thing. We need to uh, rejoice in the fact that maybe we're not yet the most humble man or woman on earth, like Moses said about himself, which cracks me up to no end, but that he would say that about himself, right? Uh, but we're on our way to deeper humility, and that's a beautiful thing. So um, for me, understanding how culture shapes me came about because um, I joke that I've lived the last two decades on three continents, four countries, and five cities in six professional roles. So a lot of change uh, in space, in time. Uh, I was never going to get married. I was never going to have kids because career was all that mattered. And obviously, I'm married. I've got kids, and that's my primary ministry. So God changes that. But what culture does is that when you step into a different culture, if it's a different language, if it's a different dress code, if it's a different traditional roles for men and women, whatever it is, you find yourself by necessity questioning your own upbringing into your own culture because the people are doing things so differently than you are. They can't possibly be completely right or completely wrong. So it's not a matter of right and wrong. This is where it's not a matter of truth with a capital T. It's a matter of a human... Um, a human approach to life with a capital L. And so what do I have to learn from the way someone else does something? And having lived in Africa, having lived in the UK, which remember I'm French, for a French person to live in England, now that is a culture shock, more than any. The French and the Brits, we don't really get along too well, at least historically we haven't. So 
there you go. So much for, you know, open mindedness. It takes a lot of open mindedness for a French girl to move to England. <laughs> and, you know, I'm saying this with a sense of humor, obviously, but learning the different cultures and picking up on them. What this taught me ultimately is that I will not be able to understand how a Brit or a North African or an American thinks and understands himself or his or her culture unless I set aside my own and I dare to learn from them. And then what that does, if you live in a culture that is a minority Christian culture or a culture where there is no Christian worldview anymore, which is the case in France with atheism, which was the case where I lived in North Africa, where another faith was prevalent, then it forces you to wonder what parts of scripture should influence my daily life versus, if I may, what parts of the culture surrounding me are purely the result of a, um, a human lifestyle and it's perfectly acceptable versus what part of the culture come from a um, religious worldview, whether it be an actual faith or whether it be atheism. And if that's the case, if they contradict scripture, then where do I draw the line? How do I embrace my culture or someone else's culture? Because God made us in his image in the sense that we are creators and so we create culture and that's perfectly good and well. But sometimes faulty worldviews that are opposed to the biblical worldview and um, the biblical description of Christ, when these come into play, I need to be able to separate. So when you live in a culture that is not primarily Christian, which is what America is moving towards, you may have grown up in a culture where American and Christian and conservative were one and the same. They were equaled. That is changing rapidly, as you know. But Americans are still living. It's one of the last places on earth where American and Christian can still be associated or where the nationality and the faith can be associated from a Christian worldview. That's, that's not the norm anymore. And so what this has taught me is basically, Tim, when I step off a plane, I'm aware that I'm in a different culture. Again, the smells are different of the, the food, the people look different, they dress different, they speak different. That's easy to remember. I'm stepping outside of my culture when I do that. But when I open my Bible, it's like I'm taking a plane and I'm stepping into a different culture, except I don't have any visual cues or auditory olfactory cues to remind me of it. I need to remind myself to have the discipline to remind myself when I'm reading Paul, I'm reading someone who lived in a first century Jewish culture that is 2000 years ago. It is very different from the American 21st century culture. It is very different from any culture on earth today. So how do I do that? How do I create a relationship with a Paul, with a Peter, with a Moses, with an Isaiah by stepping into their culture and having the humility to discover what they have to tell us from their perspective, not by imposing my all-purpose garlic salt from the 21st century Western mindset onto their own spices. One example of that that I, I love to refer to because it's the one that opened my eyes to the beauty of this is if you grew up in the church, or even if you didn't like me, you are familiar with the story of that starts on Palm Sunday and that ends with Easter. We mentioned it before. And there's that idea that we know all there is to know about Holy Week. I mean, what can we possibly have to learn about Palm Sunday or about Easter, right? We've been celebrating it for, I don't know, however many decades or centuries as a, as a culture. And yet, 
you see the gospel authors in Matthew in particular, and I'm switching into teaching mode for just a second because this blew my mind. I love to share what I've learned. And Matthew, being a really good writer, is a master of the cardinal rule number one of writing. You show, don't tell. We're all taught this at school. You show, don't tell. Well, Matthew does that. And the only way you can show, not tell, is by relying on the grid of culture. You are relying on the unspoken and unseen aspects of culture to tell someone something without actually telling them, but that's because you're assuming they have the same cultural grid as you do. If I mention Google to you, I'm not gonna need to explain it. You and I both know what that is. I think Matthew, we would have needed to explain to him what Google was and probably a few other things. We don't need to, to explain things that are obvious to us, but he does that too. He doesn't explain the equivalence of Google in his culture. Specifically on Palm Sunday, when he describes it to us, he does not tell us the obvious to him, which is that Jesus is reenacting the exact steps of a first century Jewish betrothal ceremony. From Palm Sunday to Passover on Thursday night, Jesus is actually declaring himself to be a bridegroom who has come to fetch his fiance. And that's the body of Christ, that's the church, that's you and me. But none of the gospel authors tell us that because that would be bad writing. You show, don't tell. So when Paul, and he mentions it in Ephesians that you were talking about, when he says we are the bride of Christ, he's not making it up. He's actually reading the cultural cues that Matthew inserts in his story but that you and I have lost because we don't remember what cardamom and chocolate and cinnamon taste like. We only know the all-purpose garlic salt. And so what we do with Gospel Spice is that we look at the first century Jewish culture and we see how it helps us fall in love with the original spices the way the Gospel authors intended. And what it does is that it blows my mind. On Passover, when Jesus finalizes the betrothal ceremony, the last step in a first century Jewish betrothal ceremony when the bridegroom-to-be would come into the bride-to-be's house, she's living with her parents, and he's coming to ask for her hand, and the parents accept. Well, they sign this covenant ceremony, this marriage certificate, if you will, that is a betrothal by having the bridegroom and the bride drink from the same cup and share from the same piece of bread. It's a symbol that they're going to be sharing everything and living together forevermore. But then the bridegroom doesn't take the bride home right away. He's going to go back home to where he lives with his parents and she's going to stay with her parents for about one year. And she's going to beautify herself and make herself ready for when the actual wedding comes. However, legally speaking, they're already considered as if they're married, which is what betrothal is. But before the bridegroom-to-be leaves, he says ritual words that every Jew person in first century knew to be covenantal words, like I cherish you in sickness and in health, right? These are words that we know that, you know, Westerners say at a wedding ceremony. Well, the Jewish words were, I am going to come back to take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. And I will go back and I am going to build a house for you in my father's house. There are so many rooms and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you may be where I am. This is exactly the words that Jesus says just before he goes away and dies on the cross. So every Jew knew that he was speaking betrothal covenantal words as a bridegroom to the bride. 
Now, when you know that, I don't know about you, but that makes me fall in love with him more. And that's what I want for anyone who is interested in deeper intimacy with God. Yeah, that it's so beautiful how you, so the, the digging down into the culture has exposed more truth. Uh, I'll use that term, uh, not necessarily absolute truth because the absolute truth we had, but it's more truth, small t, so that we can understand and have more, I'll use your word, spice with that story. I'm sitting here, I actually kind of got lost in the moment of you telling it when unfortunately I have like the clock going and other things going. So that was, that was so good, Stephanie. Thank you for sharing that. And what I want to tell everyone that's listening is that that's what you get when you listen in on Gospel Spice, her podcast and her message and all that she does. And, and I had a few other things, but I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of start my wrap-up questions here because I think we took people to a beautiful place and I'm going to just kind of let it, I'll use the term marinate there with them. And uh, so why don't you do this? Tell us how they can find you, the podcast, anything else you're doing. We'll include it in the notes also, Stephanie, but verbally give it to them so they can, they can find you. And then I've got a couple of quick questions we'll finish up with. Yes, very easy, gospelspice.com. That's it, it's all there. You'll find the so, podcast and obviously the Gospel Spice podcast on wherever you listen to See, Go, Create. Gospel Spice podcast is right there too. Um, but gospelspice.com has everything you need. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that. What's next for you? Either short term, long term? What's coming up for Stephanie and all that, all that your world looks like? I know you just sent someone off to college, didn't you? Yes, we sent our son. He's in college right now. So that's going really well. Firstborn, uh, talk about letting go, uh, but going really well. Now, the exciting piece is we, um, the Lord has led a team to join me, and we have now the Gospel Spice Ministries, which is a lot more than the podcast. We are a registered 501c3, and our goal is to come alongside people through in-depth Bible study through small groups. We currently have groups in seven countries already uh, through you know, the podcast and more. And then also to come alongside um, Christian organizations that help support people in need. And the two ways we do this is we support agencies that fight human trafficking. So that's one. And the other, and that's with Wellspring International, the uh, humanitarian aid of the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries that we love greatly. And then um, the other is with Biblica, which distributes Bibles around the world and educates people to fall in love deeper with God. So we partner with them because we love what they do. And it's I think it's um, those partnerships together is what gospel spice ministries is seeking to emulate in the future so that's where we are yeah that's good and i'm sure people can connect with that if they find you at, at the podcast and all because i'm sure you address that stephanie last question seek go create is the title of our show which one of those words either jumps out at you or resonates with you whatever it might be and why last question and then i'll do a quick wrap up for us yeah. Oh, I knew this question was coming because I've listened to this podcast and I know it's coming. And OK, this is you. I, I really can't choose. It's really, really hard. If I really had to pick one, I've thought about this ahead of time. I knew you were going to ask me and I knew I would feel stuck in answering. I would have to say from my heart, it's to create. I love to create content because I love to watch people fall in love with God. 
generally speaking, to seek others where they are, because God again sought me when I was not seeking him. That word seek resonates with me deeply because I think it tells us so much about God's heart. So I can't really choose, and I could tell you all sorts of reasons why go is such an amazing word too. So all this to say, what you're doing in this podcast is amazing because those three words encapsulate the human longing because we are created in God's image. So awesome, awesome words. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I think you, I may have shared with you in the past that they, they do have a lot of meaning for me personally and obviously with our faith. And you could probably guess some of the places that the words came from. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. You and I could have had conversation, I believe, for hours. Probably best that we stop that here. We will communicate again in the future, I am sure. Uh, so I appreciate you for taking the time. If you have listened in and you would like to continue this conversation, which I encourage you to do, well, on whatever channel, on whatever platform you're listening, we have the ability for you to add comments and continue, join the community, join the team. And I'll even pull Stephanie back in and say, hey, Stephanie, we've got some questions here. We've got some thoughts. We've got some, some comments. We've got some people arguing with us. Come on, let's, let's get that going too. We'd love to have that. Uh, just join, join with us and do that. I mentioned at the beginning, seekgocreate.com is one place to do that. You can go there. We've got in-depth episode notes. We've got places you can ask questions. We are also on all the social media channels and YouTube now. You can find us in all of those places, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Seek, Go, Create. So find us there. Thank you again for joining us on this episode. It has been such a blessing to me. And I just ask that you join us on the next episode. And until then, continue being all that you were created to be.